I want today to read to you this chapter, but we're only going to focus on the last couple of verses of 2 Thessalonians 1. And uh, I wanted to read it to you for the purpose of gaining some kind of context to what Paul says and prays for the Thessalonians at the end of this chapter. It goes like this. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Clearly, these are Christians who are suffering on account of their faith. But Paul takes great joy and pride in the fact that they are not wavering. He says they're steadfast, that they love each other. There's a faithfulness and and an untiring commitment to Christ among them, which is praiseworthy. And then he wants to remind them, given that these are suffering Christians, he wants to remind them of the future. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So to these Christians whose world is full of injustice because they are suffering on account of their obedience to the Creator, Paul reminds them that there will be an inversion of these realities, that there is a future coming where he says, to use his own language, he says that God will be just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, but then also to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well. So God will right wrongs. He'll set things to rights. He'll reverse the fortunes of, of believers, he says. And he goes on in this vein. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Fundamentally, he's saying, friends, think of this future. The Christian faith is a future-oriented faith because we know that this is not it. God is with us. He's present. He's doing good things in the world even right now, but this is not it. There is a future when Christ will come, he's saying. And that is when things will be made right. And of course, this is an immense comfort to anyone who's experiencing suffering in the present, or in their case, persecution, affliction, that God is going to rectify all things. And then he turns to this prayer, what he's been praying for these Christians. And he says this, and this is where I want our focus to remain this evening. He says, to this end, we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise that God may fulfill every resolve for good. I want to take up with you the theme this evening of resolution and resolutions because the obvious reason that we're at the turn of a year and it always marks a moment of transition, doesn't it? Where you say goodbye to certain things, to, to last year 
and there's a death to the old and the opportunity, the kind of hope that comes with the new. And I know that I myself find myself very introspective at this time of year, and I have done particularly over the last couple of weeks as I've been reflecting on certain realities um, and longing for new things. And some of that concerns the situation around me and the church and so on. And a lot of it has to do with my own life. And I'm sure you identify with this as a reflection on the past, as the, an awareness of um, ways in which you want to change. But there's also the longing to embrace God's good future and the ways that you want to commit yourself to uh, God's will and plan for you personally. And I'm sure that all of you identify with this. If not now, then at certain moments in your life and in the course of a year, I think all of us go through this to a certain degree, right? We understand what we're talking about. So this is why I wanted us to think about resolutions. Now, what of resolutions in, in general? I know that when we talk about New Year's resolutions, there's often a little bit of an eye roll, and it's often the course of a lot of humor and self-deprecating humor at that because we're conscious that the notion of a resolution is often accompanied by the inevitable failure that we reach um, not very long into the year, right? And we use the phrase new year, new you, primarily with irony because we're conscious that nothing really changes. We bring everything that we were into this new year. I'm not a new me as much as I might have good intentions. And uh, one pattern I've noticed over recent years especially is that year on year people keep telling me um, about the commitments they're making just for January. You know, we commit to Veganuary, the idea that you need to be vegan for a month. What that accomplishes, I've no idea. Or dry January, you know, or in Tom's case, no cheese January. Um, you think I'm joking. This is serious stuff, guys. And, of course, what is this, this January commitment? It is, it is the tacit acknowledgement that we wouldn't make it through the whole year. So if we set ourselves a small, achievable goal, baby steps, if we get through January, then we've at least felt a little bit better about ourselves. And so the whole notion of New Year's resolutions is accompanied by this consciousness of our depleting powers of, of will and the fact that we don't really have the ability to change ourselves to any great extent, and this is just a source of humor, you know. That said, that said, I do think that the fundamental urge to resolve what is a resolution, it's a decision, a commitment, the fundamental urge to resolve, to pursue good, is a God-given one. And this is why I was drawn to this verse in 2 Thessalonians 1 where Paul's praying this for these Christians. He's saying, he's asking that God may fulfill every resolve for good. Every resolution for good. And I think there are a number of reasons I could list to you why I think this is a valid thing to do. And I'm not attached to the idea of a New Year's resolution. I think it's a convenient time for us to think about this because we're all conscious of this reality at this time of year. I'm not committed to that. I'm more committed to the notion that uh, as Christians we need to continually and keep coming back to God in resolution and resolve to pursue good in life. But I think this is a good time for us to think about it because I think at the start of a year there is opportunity. Now let me give you a number of reasons why I think that we should be compelled to think about these things. The first is that we're acknowledging that time is short. Now, what is it that lies behind our urge to make resolutions in life if it's not the consciousness that life is moving past, that we, are, that we have a finite amount of life on this earth 
And the older you get with every passing year, the more you become conscious of the fact that a lot of your life has gone. You know, I'm most likely past halfway myself, and who knows, it could be much shorter than that. And that awareness focuses the mind. And you pray with the psalmist, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I think people who make resolutions basically are conscious. I, I, I don't have unlimited time on this planet. And this is certainly the context into which Paul is praying for this for these Thessalonians. He's just told them, hasn't he, about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not here forever. This, is not, this life is, is finite. And in view of that fact, there's an urgency. How are you going to use the time? What are you committing yourself to? What are you resolving to accomplish with the short amount of life that you do have? Another reason why I'd say this is a valid thing to do is that we're conscious of our shortcomings, our imperfections, our inadequacies. Now, this is a prerequisite for the Christian life. No one is a Christian who hasn't come to an acknowledgement of the flawed reality of who you are, certainly at a moral level, that we fall far short of God's good intentions for us as his creatures. That's why we come to him begging mercy. Whenever you're engaging in this kind of introspection, and there is a morbid version of this which is dangerous, a Christian ought always to be ready to examine their own heart for the purpose of engaging in repentance and the receiving of grace so that we can move forward and and be changed. So resolutions are built upon the premise that you are not the completed person. And then the flip side to that, of course, another thing is the positive aspect to that, that the gospel comes with it, it comes with the inbuilt power to bring change in your life. Sometimes that is rapid. I've seen people come to know Jesus and make rapid progress and change. Sometimes it's slow and wearying and, and you, you despair, am I ever going to to, to rule this part of my character or become more like Jesus in this way. But eventually, through long determination and prayer, you can change. And there's that longing to pursue what God has in store for you. Another reason why I think this is a valid thing to do is that we're aware that God works, his grace works through the rhythms of life. And here's what I mean. God created his world with patterns of, into, in the way he works through time as he's created it. The days. You see this in the creation narrative. He works through days. He works through the seasons of the year. He works in months and years and he works in generations. And therefore, the fact that at the turn of a year, you know, the cynical part of us would say, well, look, there's nothing different about the 1st of January than there was about the 31st of December. But actually, I think God does honor these transition moments in our lives. And they're given to us by God as a gift. There's a verse in Lamentations, which has meant a lot to me over the years, where um, it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You have a bad day. You think you've exhausted the grace of God. You think you've drawn down the account of his mercy. And you're very happy to put that day behind you. But you do so with the knowledge, the confident certainty that there is fresh mercy and grace going into a new day. And I think that this is how God works. 
Along with the new seasons of spring speaks of his life, so it also speaks of new grace for a new year. And I think it's totally appropriate to register the seasons and transitions of our lives as moments for putting the past behind us and embracing the new. And I think it's certainly true at the turn of a year. And I'll just say the one final reason why I think this is a valid thing to do. The New Testament, the Bible in general, and certainly the New Testament, constantly calls us to decisions, resolutions, resolve. Uses lots of language, talks about the summons to believe or the summons to follow Christ or to obey to choose, to convert. And here, the language Paul uses in 2 Thessalonians 1 is every resolve, every resolve for good. There is a validity to the Christian coming before God and saying, I want to choose this path, knowing that it's going to please you, knowing that this is your will. One standout example of this was the man Jonathan Edwards, who lived in the 1700s, an American theologian and philosopher and pastor who lived and preached through a number of revivals in the cities where he was pastoring and who left a legacy of some of the most influential theological books that have ever been written, a truly outstanding, great thinker from a great nation. And um, he, as a young man, wrote in uh, some of his personal writings, he wrote a long list of resolutions. I want to read to you a couple of them. It begins in this way. It says, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him, which means sort of ask him, by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. And then he goes on, lists them. It says things like this, Resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Didn't want to waste a day. He says, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Resolve to inquire every night as I'm going to bed wherein I've been negligent, what sin I've committed, and wherein I've denied myself. Also at the end of every week, month, and year. And he goes on. There's a long, lengthy list of these resolutions that Jonathan Edwards made as a young man. Now, whether he... Uh, committed to and kept them or not, I'm not certain in the sense that you know, we don't have every detail of his daily life. And I don't think it matters so much whether he, he, he bore with those resolutions in a formal sense. But when you know anything about this particular man, you recognize that these resolutions were characteristic of his life and the life he then went on to live. And what I'm trying to help you to see, of course, is that God can honor your decisions You say, there are paths in front of me, there are multiple paths, or maybe a a Y junction in the road. Which way am I to go? And when you commit before God, you say, I resolve to go this way for Christ. God may honor that. He may give strength to that. He may give energy to that. He may call you to greater things because you have, have got on your knees and resolved before God to do his will. And so I think it's a good thing for us to think about. And the question I want to ask Thinking about what Paul's prayer here is, well, what kind of resolutions does God want from us? What does it mean for a Christian to make godly resolution and, and to commit themselves to the things that please God? Or to, you know, what would this prayer look like if it was answered in our lives? That God may fulfill every resolve for good. I want to show you a number of things that occur to me from this passage. The first is this, that I think that our resolutions ought to be spiritual. They ought to be spiritual. What I mean is this. 
UI bundle of desires and goals and aspirations and hopes. And then moments of reflection will obviously tell you that those desires and ambitions and goals are mixed things. There is that which is put into you by God, it's good, it's honoring to him, and it's often mixed with all kinds of um, kind of fleshly, if you want to put it like way, or worldly or carnal desires. And they're often intermingle. And it requires a certain amount of discernment to know what is pleasing to God and what is not, and what drives you that is honoring to him and what is actually just honoring to other things or to yourself. And though I think that the first thing we have to recognize is that the Christian is someone who wants to make resolutions that are spiritual. Now, what do I mean by this? I do not mean that there is certain aspects or parts of your life that are compartmentalized as being lived for God, whereas all the rest of it God's not interested in. That is completely false to the way the Bible portrays the Christian life. There are no compartments. There is no dichotomy. There is no dualism in the Christian life. When God saves you, he's interested in the entire scope of your existence on this earth. Everything that you are and do, all of it can be and is spiritual in that sense. And so even your seemingly mundane desires and commitments can be committed in a spiritual way. You think your desires for work and ambition and your desires for health and for family and for these various things, all of it can be, it can, should be caught up as things that God is interested in and has something to say about. So what do I mean when I say that our resolutions ought to be spiritual. And what I mean is something like this. That everything that you commit to and decide for and choose to pursue ought to be done, as it were, in the face of God. Under a submission to his will. Desiring to know his, his will and his, his purpose for your life. That there is no part of you that's hidden from him. There's no part of you that's just living for yourself even. But everything is exposed to his gaze, longing to obey him. And I think this is implicit in what Paul says here when he prays for them, that God may make you worthy of his calling, his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. I don't think he could use these terms, this phrasing, this idea like a work of faith, unless he was speaking Unless he's working with the assumption that everything that we're called to choose for and decide for ought to be done in the face of God. We're called to live for him, to be worthy of his calling. So I take it as a first step that our resolutions ought to be spiritual. You are by definition, as a Christian, someone filled with the Holy Spirit. Someone wanting to keep in step with and walk with the Holy Spirit in your day-to-day life. Someone the Spirit is speaking to and convicting and bringing to repentance and transformation. You're a spiritual person. And we need to have spiritual longings. The pursuit of God. The pursuit of God's will. Desire to, to run faster in, in 2021 than we did in 2020. To be more diligent in the things of God. To be more earnest, more interested in fulfilling his will in our lives. Our resolutions should be spiritual. Then I would add that our resolutions ought to also be about fruitfulness for God. What is the content of these res- this resolve? 
And I think undoubtedly that what Paul is praying for here when he's praying that God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, without a doubt, Paul is interested in the productivity or the fruitfulness of these Christians. And I say that because the New Testament has no place for the notion of a Christian who is nominal or who is only interested in gaining a ticket, as it were, to heaven. The Christian life, by definition, is a summons to discipleship and to following Christ and to walking into obedience with him and to living a fruitful life in which Christ works out his purposes in and through you. And you see this all the way through the New Testament. And it's not just for specific, special people. It's for everyone who is a, who's called to be a believer in Christ. And we could go to many passages in the New Testament which make it very explicit that God has a purpose for you. He is interested in your life. He's given you certain gifts, certain talents, certain opportunities. He's watching and observing you and he wants you to do his will and to be fruitful for him. I don't know why a Christian ever flounders with an uncertainty about purpose in life, calling, these kinds of questions in the sense that we know we're here to to fulfill God's will in and through us. There's no question about this in my mind. Fruitfulness is God's will. And Paul himself is a great example of this. He, uh, well, in numerous places in his letters, he, he opens up. He speaks about his longings, his desires, what he wants to do and what he's seeking to achieve. Fundamentally, he keeps showing us that he wants to live a fruitful life. I'll give you one example. When he writes to the Roman church, he'd never been there, but he'd want, he wants to visit them. And he tells them that right at the beginning of the letter to the Romans. He says that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. If ever you spent time with Paul, I think you'd find him ticking with and burning with purpose and desire and longing to fulfill God's will in the the days, weeks, months and years ahead of him. Whatever time God had left for him, he was about the purposes of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted to live a fruitful life. And this is what he's praying for when he's praying for these Thessalonians. May God fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. So that all of you, not just the pastors, every every believer in this church might be living, might be choosing to fulfill God's will and living a fruitful life. Now, I, I find this to be something that lends immense sense of purpose and dignity to the life of the Christian and I want to draw a contrast here. You know, we, when we talk about resolutions, very often we're talking about slightly light, superficial self-improvement programs, aren't we? Why is that? Well, I think it's because the world in which we live has largely stripped away any greater sense of purpose. And, 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 and now, you know, what is, what is a life well lived in, in today's day and age? And a life well lived in, today, in this day and age is, a, is an authentic life. A life in which you express yourself fully. And we've reduced the purpose of life down to you do you. And we praise people for their bravery in being who they really are and performing themselves through social media. You think this is actually somewhat pathetic because it means that we've narrowed the great notion of what it means to live a purposeful, dignified life and narrowed it down to you, the individual. No wonder our resolutions are so lightweight, you know, so petty, so uninteresting. 
so me-focused. Rather, for the Christian, the Bible calls you to something much grander than that. It calls you to the service of your master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in serving him, you serve others. You serve your, the church and you serve the world. This is the purpose that, that God has called you for. It's bigger than you. It's much bigger than you. Now, that's not to say that your resolutions might not also involve ways in which you need to change. But that change is always for the greater purpose of fulfilling God's will in, in and through your life. I'm give you a couple of very mundane, ordinary examples to illustrate what I'm trying to say here. You think about the way that we resolve to be healthier. And I know that health is something of an obsession in our day and age. So we ought to take it with a pinch of salt. But you think there can be very contrasting motivations towards health. But on the one hand, it can be just that you're really conscious summer is coming. And you want to have that body ready. You know, there's vanity underneath it. There's a longing to display yourself in your most beautiful version. And you know, any time you spend on social media or whatever will only exacerbate that desire. Our world is obsessed with aesthetic beauty. And um, it, it unfortunately is a dominating thing in a way which it really ought not to be. But on the other hand, you might pursue health because you recognize God's given you one body. The scriptures say it's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, if you only have this one chance to live this life, you better remain strong and healthy for as long as you can in order to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, yes, it can involve even very personal, mundane goals in life to resolve to, to fulfill God's will, but for the greater, grander purpose of being fruitful. You see, even the small and... Seemingly unimportant things in your life are attached to this great, great thing that you are about. Fruitfulness for God. That changes everything when you look at things that way. Our resolutions then are spiritual. They're, they're about fruitfulness. Let me show you another thing. I think our resolutions should be about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays this in very explicit terms. He says, to this end... We always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. This is what you can think of as an ultimate purpose. The most important thing. That God is calling you to a pursuit in life that is ultimately about Christ being glorified in you. And then he also adds, and you in him, which I take to mean this, that anyone who's in the vicinity of the Lord Jesus Christ basks in his reflected glory. To be a Christian is to abase yourself in humility and to serve the Lord Christ, but it's also then to inherit the dignity of being his servant so that you receive glory also. What an extraordinary thought. In any case, Paul is saying here that our resolve for good and our every work of faith ought to be ultimately about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, I think this is something that reveals the great tragedy of our secularized age. Where there is no Christ to live for, there is no greater purpose. Christ is the most worthy. 
the most perfect and the eternal purpose that we are created for, to know and love him and to live for his glory. You take Christ out of the picture, anything else that you could live for in this life is by definition lesser, imperfect, and temporary. And I think this is one of the things that goes a long way in explaining the despair of the modern world. And there is much despair. Is that we're no longer connected with the reason for which we are created, with the Lord Christ himself, his glory. We're made to worship, friends. And when you take that out of the picture, what you end up with is a vacuous, empty, lightweight life. It's what's described by Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes as vanity. It means kind of emptiness, futility. And he opens his book in this way. He says, vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain? By the toil at which he toils under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. He said, when, you, when God is not in the picture, life is just a mundane re- repeating of the same things again and again. That's true of you in your individual life, your day job. It's true in the great scheme of things. History repeats itself, we say. And for good reason, it certainly does. And this is what the world looks like when you take Christ out of the picture. It's just vanity. It's emptiness. It's futility. It's pointlessness. He goes on and says it in a very vivid way. He says, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. He's saying, look at all these rivers. They're pouring, pouring, pouring into the sea, but the sea doesn't get any more full. Of course, we understand why. But it's a vivid picture, isn't it? A metaphor, the cycle of things, the, the emptiness of things, of like your life is basically like digging a hole and then filling it up again, and then digging a hole and then filling it up again. It's literally the kinds of tortures that they inflicted in, in the concentration camps just to cause people to despair. And yet when people think accurately about their day-to-day lives, that's exactly what you're doing if you're not connected with the greatest purpose in life, which is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet you are. You as a Christian need not lead a mundane life. Need not have weightless petty goals. Need not feel futility in your day-to-day existence. Because everything you are and do can be bent towards and directed at and focused upon the glory of our Lord. Even, you know, and this is what is so extraordinary. That because Christ owns you and loves you, because everything you are and do is spiritual and sacred, it means that even the mundane things in your life are sanctified. You may not find purpose in your day job. Christ is honored by it when it's done for his glory. I don't know how many hundreds, maybe thousands of nappies I've changed at this point. That can feel like an, it can feel like streams running to the sea and then all going over and over again. It's like, I just changed it and it's happened again. Believe me, it can feel like empty futility parenting and we're having another one come and we're starting the whole thing over and over again. And yet when you're conscious, oh, I do these things for the glory of God. It might sound ridiculous to you, but everything in your life can be touched by this consciousness. I'm about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in everything. 
And suddenly everything is dignified and elevated and rendered sacred by the reality that Christ is my ultimate purpose. The great things that we do in our lives as well as the small things, it's about him. And so to take this into your heart is to have a focus. You go into a year as we are, you think, how am I to resolve myself for good? And when the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ becomes your central desire, your prayer is, Lord, I don't want to dishonor you. I want to make you famous. I want to reflect your wonder and your beauty and your joy. I want to glorify you by the way I live. Help me to repent of everything in my heart, every action, every failing, which does not bring you glory. Let me be a living sacrifice to you, O Lord. This brings me to my last point. That our resolutions then ought to also be rooted in the grace of God. Now I say this because we've been focused entirely at this point on this reality of resolve. What Paul's praying for is that they resolve for good in every work of faith. But don't lose sight of the fact that all of this is couched in the context of a prayer. And a prayer is a plea to God a dependent request that God would enable this to take place. So you look at it again. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy, that he may fulfill every resolve for good, that it's according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is speaking in two directions at the same time. He's talking about his pleas to God in prayer for them, as well as exhorting them in terms of their own decisions and resolve to pursue the will of God. But it tells us this extraordinary thing, this doctrine that's just fundamental to the Christian life. This is what I want to call a kind of gospel humility, which is an awareness that we really contribute nothing, that all of it is empowered by and enabled by the living God. Now this is a very important thing to understand and to to take hold and to grasp this balance which the New Testament strikes in in explaining this this, the way your decisions and will work and the way that God enables and provides and supplies and empowers you even in the doing. So yes, on the one hand, there's a place for effortful living in the Christian life, for resolve, for decisions, for commitment, for action, for self-control, for discipline. All these things are encouraged and praised in the New Testament. They're all there. But at the same time, the assumption is always you'll achieve nothing unless God enables and empowers and fuels you and fills you by his spirit. So it's made really clear, for example, in Philippians chapter 2. There in Philippians 2 verse 12, Paul speaks to the Philippian Christians. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying, I want you to continue to let this faith of yours be fully 
expressed in every action of obedience that you're called to walk in as a Christian. You've received the word, it's changed your heart, it's changed your life. Now work it out. Work it out in purity, work it out in devotion, work it out in prayer, work it out in your day job, in your conduct towards your boss or towards your employees, work it out in your marriage, work it out in parenting, work it out in everything. Work out your salvation. You're a saved person, everything in your life needs to be now be worked out. But then he goes on and he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work it out, but it's actually God who works in you. So who is it? Is it you or is it God? Well, yes. You as a Christian are called to choose, to resolve every good work, every work of faith. But you do so on your knees in prayer. You do so with humility, begging that God will enable you and use you and change you and strengthen you I think this is understanding this, the way this works and the way these ideas can be are totally inextricable and cannot be disentangled is a vital safeguard in the Christian life as you walk into this new year with longing and commitment and desire. It's a safeguard from falling into the two great crevices that lie on either side. On the one side is the crevice of success, which leads to pride, where you kind of pat yourself on the back. I fulfilled my resolutions this year. I read the whole Bible in a year. I followed my Bible reading plan or I accomplished this or that or the other thing. Whatever it is. You pat yourself on the back. and No, no, no. You can't, you can't fall down to that crevice because you know whatever change has took, taken place in your life, it's the gospel. It's God's grace. He enabled it. He, he's forgiven you. He's given you mercy. He's given you the spirit. He's changing you. Please do not give yourself any credit. But then it also allows us to avoid the, the opposite crevice, which is, of course is the one of despair. Which more often than not is the thing which kills our resolutions in the end, isn't it? Oh, I've failed for the thousandth time. I may as well give up at this point. And the whole purpose of Paul being on his knees in prayer is a consciousness that of course these Christians are going to fail, but God is gracious. And he keeps enabling us. And it keeps strengthening you to get up and go again. Never despair. Instead, we walk a line of passionate, urgent, faith-filled living for the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is undergirded by a fundamental humility. I am what I am by the grace of God. Everything I do is because of him. So friends, as we are embarking into this new year, which all of us hope is going to be in many ways superior to the last one, as we enter into this new year, friends, let's lay behind us things, which, things like the sins which Hebrews talks about, which cling so closely. Let's put them behind us. Let's put behind us the failings of yesterday. Let's leave them at the foot of the cross, knowing that God is gracious. But let's also then resolve to pursue the things of God in this year. If you have not made any commitments and any decisions, then do so now. How is the Spirit moving you? What is He provoking in you? What is He awakening? What desires is He stirring up in you? This is not just something, of course, which takes place at the turn of the year. The Spirit's always at work in your life if you're a believer. Respond then. 
Respond. Be pliable, soft-hearted, ready to move with the leading of the Spirit. And this is how Christ accomplishes his will in and through you. May he accomplish that will in us. Amen. I want to invite Pete the band to come and lead us in the response of worship. We're going to take communion now. Friends, for me, communion seems to me to offer us two great opportunities. The one is to repent. Remember that Christ's blood covers our sins and to turn away from the past. But the other is to recognize that, you know, Paul says that we're purchased by the blood of Christ. So to eat the bread and to drink the wine is to acknowledge, I belong to Jesus. How can I serve you, Lord? I want to encourage you as you take this bread and drink this wine, why don't you bow your head and commune with the Lord even now? There may be the case of things you want to repent of and turn away from, but there's also this consecration, the saying to God, I belong to you. May this year be lived for the glory of your son who has purchased me at the price, the cost of his own blood. So offer yourself in a fresh way to him today. Amen.